0: Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Jamie Sanders. You may know Jamie as the Migraine Diva. She lives with chronic migraines, fibromyalgia, depression, and anxiety, and she's going to talk to us all about it. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: I'm excited. Yes. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Let's start at the beginning of your story as we do every time. Uh, I would love to know how you first realized that you had something going on health-wise, And what steps you've taken to control your health and to get these diagnoses?
1: Sure. So um, migraine actually started for me when I was a child. So I was diagnosed with migraine when I was eight. Wow. But I, yeah, that was a long, long time ago. And that was really difficult living as a child with migraine. Um, But I actually going back and looking, um, I actually had abdominal migraine when I was two. Wow. So I pretty much spent 40 of my 42 years with migraine.
0: That is unbelievable. Yeah. So especially as a kid living with chronic pain like that, it's so hard to understand, to process, even when adults are telling you what's going on. How have you sort of been able to grow through that and understand yourself with these diagnoses from a young age?
1: What was helpful was my mother had migraine herself growing up so I had her understanding um and her being able to explain migraine to me and Mm. to empathize and sympathize and be very compassionate about my pain Mm. that I think saved me throughout my childhood because if I didn't have that and um, I also had a first cousin who had migraine also so um Having that in the family definitely made it a lot more understandable for me hmm. and um, didn't make it necessarily easier to live with, but I didn't have to deal with not having my parents or my family understand what I was experiencing. Right. So having that support from a very young age was very critical in developing the person I am today with advocacy, because that's a very strong foundation for me.
0: Absolutely. And we're going to talk about uh, what advocacy looks like to you in a minute. But I'm also curious about these additional diagnoses. How did those come about? um, And how have you also treated fibromyalgia and the depression and anxiety? I could definitely
1: say, looking back, that I was depressed as a child, just because of the migraine and how it impacted my life and kept me from showing up and participating in life as a child, and dealing with the stigma, especially back in the eighties, it was you know really difficult yeah. back then. Where well, she's just having a headache, and um, you know during that time frame, you know your your teachers were a lot older than you. So, when you try to explain to them, well, I'm not feeling well, and every day almost I had some type of abdominal issue because of the migraine, it doesn't necessarily have the head pain, but I have the nausea, the upset stomach, and definitely the, the sensitivity to light and all of that. Um, but if you constantly go into your teacher every day with the same thing, they're gonna think, well, you just don't wanna be in school. And yeah, it's
0: like the boy who cried wolf.
1: Right. And you have adults who explain to you or tell you how you're feeling instead of listening to you saying, no, this is what I'm experiencing and accepting that. Um, so that part was um, very hard for me. And it's got
0: to really sort of skew your relationship with authority in many ways, too, doesn't it? Well,
1: I wound up really hating going to school. And on top of that, I was always in like gifted programs because I was always excelling. So, and I have this perfectionist personality. So that on top of dealing with this pain just made school just some place I didn't like to be. And I also had peers who really didn't understand either and who would say, well, you're just faking it because you don't want to be in school. And why? you absent so much. And, you know, that was hurtful to me, you know, especially if it was mm. coming from someone who I thought was my friend. And it's
0: where ableism begins, isn't it?
1: Yes. You know, because you look fine, you don't seem sick, you know. Um, so that definitely fueled, you know, the beginnings of the mental disorder, for sure. And I remember my family saying, oh, she's so melancholy, you know. And that's when I would start writing. That's when my writing started. So I started to write a lot of poetry. And it was very sad But that was the only way I felt comfortable sharing or expressing how I was feeling. So depression and anxiety showed up, I would say, in elementary school, middle school, that, that time frame. But I wasn't diagnosed officially until my early 20s.
0: Wow. So you went a long time without any support there. Right. Because I just thought, well, this is just, you know,
1: I'm just never going to be happy kind of thing. And I'm just never going to be able to feel those feelings genuinely.
0: Mm. This and is it, your, your lot. Yeah. And what
1: finally made me feel like this was not normal was during my last pregnancy in my last trimester, it's, this was New Year's. Mm-hmm. I woke up and I remember feeling like I have no connection to this baby I'm carrying. And I felt like when I gave birth to my child, I'm not going to be able to love it. And I love being a mother. And I was always excited to, you know, give birth to my children. So I knew that was completely off and it scared me. So I called my doctor immediately and I was diagnosed with prepartum depression. So that's my first, uh, depression diagnosis. But also
0: a temporary one when it's something that you've had since you were a kid. Right, right. So, and
1: then, you know, kind of lingered after that and manifested differently. Um, But then I was able to recognize kind of what those feelings were and what they meant. And so I was able to get a proper diagnosis later on.
0: Wow. Well, it's a good thing you've got the diagnoses now. I mean, I'm sure that makes a whole hell of a difference when you're seeking support um, and understanding that you can actually seek support for these conditions. Yes. Yes. And I'm one
1: who never shies away from speaking about what I'm experiencing. And um, especially as a woman of color, I know in our communities talking about mental health is taboo and it's a sign of weakness. And even on my mother's side, there's like this, this mystery of like my great grandmother and her um, mental illness and nobody few people really know the true story behind it. And it's, it's like shied upon nobody really wants to talk about it. So I'm like, you know, really upset about that because that can identify so many things for me and so many other people in my family who have mental illness, because that's part of, you know, that's a big key that can unlock a lot of mysteries for us.
0: Well, and she could easily have had migraines and, you know, have had depression and anxiety because of it. And because of her generation been called hysterical. Exactly. You know, or she
1: maybe could have not have been. And like you said, it just, she just could have been hysterical um, or just going through something and they labeled it as, you know, depression or something more serious or psychotic or whatever. Mm. Um, But, you know, it was important for me to be transparent and open and deal with my, emotions so that they don't overwhelm and overtake me in my life, especially as a young mother at the time, it was important that I took care of that so I can be there for my children.
0: Absolutely. Now, when did the fibromyalgia start popping up for you? That
1: occurred in about 2012. And I basically started to feel just run down all the time and my body would just hurt and it would feel like I was a human punching bag and, and I would have low grade fevers every day. I would have horrible night sweats where I would wake up and I'd be completely soaked and my sheep would be just completely soaked through. And I would have uh, really, really bad dizzy spells to the point of almost fainting and I had all the tender spots that, you know, come with fibromyalgia. And I remember going to see my doctor. And she was like, well, you have myofascial pain syndrome. I'm like, well, no. Um, I read up on that. And this seems a lot more like fibromyalgia. She was perceiving yeah. that it was MFS. I'm like, no. It's not. And I kind of had to fight with her. I'm like, well, if you don't get me a referral to a rheumatologist, I'm going to find a new primary care doctor. So she.
0: This is got, how you advocate for yourself. Yeah.
1: So she <laughs> quickly got me that referral. And I was properly diagnosed with uh, fibromyalgia. And the rheumatologist basically told me the reason why I developed it is because of my chronic migraine. And at the time, I had chronic daily headache and new daily persistent headache. My central nervous system was on 24-7. So the pain manifested everywhere else in my body. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes
0: total sense, doesn't it?
1: It does. But it was a devastating diagnosis for me because I was already at my wits end trying to find a treatment that will help reduce the severity and frequency of my migraine and daily headaches. And now I have something else on top of that. And I was devastated. I cried because I don't want Mm. to deal with another pain syndrome. It's too much to handle. It was hard to deal with one, but to have multiple. At that time, that was my fourth pain diagnosis.
0: Wow. And this is one of those things that, you know, None of us would choose to have these syndromes. If Mm -hmm. we could all live pain-free, we'd much prefer uh, that that lifestyle, but then being accused of others by, you know, because we live with pain and people don't believe it, that can be really even more of, of pouring salt on the wound kind of thing, really. So how are you keeping your pain under control? How are you managing your body pain, your head pain with the migraines and the nausea and all the side effects from day to day? Well, for the fibromyalgia, quite a few years ago, about going on
1: six years ago, um, my therapist at the time recommended her good friend who was a, a naturopath. And so I went to see her to help with the migraine and the fibromyalgia. The migraine was really difficult to kind of combat, but with seeing her and really tackling my gut health and uh, my diet and g- going up through different protocols and detoxes, I was able to put my fibro in remission. Wonderful. So, and it's pretty much stayed that way. Like, I don't have the night sweats. I don't have the fevers. I don't have the dizzy spells. I'm, my body is still very sensitive. I still have like the allodynia, the sensitivity to touch um, that part's still there but I don't feel like I'm getting beat up all day. And um, I remember telling my rheumatologist when I was first diagnosed that my feet felt like I have Jesus' feet. That was the only way I could explain it because it felt like I was getting stakes through my feet. Mm. I'm like, I feel like I have Jesus' feet.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I don't have- It's a great description. <laughs> yeah, that's the only like way I could like put it in a way where people could understand that type of pain at my feet. I was experiencing my feet. So I'm not experiencing that anymore. So she definitely helped me get that into remission, the migraine, I think because I've had it my whole life pretty much. Um, and migraine is so mysterious and individualistic to each person who experiences it. Um, and there's no known cause. That really has not changed for me. Um, I am currently intractable. I've been intractable for 13 years. So Mm. I've been in pain every day for that amount of time. Wow. It fluctuates. So I've been able to pretty much manage my pain through a variety of preventive medications, getting Botox and nerve blocks, Getting massage therapy, using meditation, relaxation, deep breathing, um, CBD salves really help for me, essential oils. Doing that helps keep my pain in a place where I'm not at a seven or above every day where I used to be. I'm pretty much between a two and a five. Mm. Once I get above a five, then I classify that as an attack, even though I'm currently in one every day. But if it gets above a five on the pain scale for me and everybody, it's subjective because my five is different from somebody else's five.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, But when I get to about a six, then I like, okay, I'm not able to function as well. And Mm. then that's when I have to resort to possibly using my abortive medications or my rescues. Um, so that's pretty much what my life is like. Pain is involved in it every single day. I don't really experience nausea and vomiting. Um, that kind of went out the window as I became an adult, which I'm kind of grateful for. Um, but I do have gastric distress, so I get a lot of, um, abdominal pain still, um, and lovely diarrhea, TMI, I'm sorry, Mm. but...
0: (laughs) No, we talk about poop all the time on the show.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. um, And that can last for, like, the worst episode I had of that was, like, 12 hours of that.
0: Wow. So it's like having a stomach flu.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because there is a whole nervous system in our... You know, digestive tract and in our intestines. It's our second stuff. brain, right? So it's completely affected um, with migraine and with viral. That's why we have IBS and things like that. So um, it can be quite a struggle. Um, ginger is my best friend. Yeah, um, there's lots of ginger. I travel with it. It goes everywhere with me. Um, well,
0: this is the the thing about have a a friend who has chronic illness because we always have a survival kit with us. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I have my migraine toolkit
1: and those of us in the migraine and headache community talk about our toolkits and we do not leave home without it. It is mandatory. That is our, you know, life jacket basically. And yeah, you know, all of our stages of rescue are in there. So, mm. you know, we have our first line, our second line, our third line and so forth. So it's very important that we keep mm. that with us.
0: Yeah. Where is your pain right now today as you're talking to me? My pain right now is behind my left eye. That's usually where it
1: is. Um, and it's fluctuating. Like before we started, it was about a four and a half. It's kind of dialed mm. back down to like a three and a half. I'll probably continue to do that all day. Um, so I'm, I'm hesitant on using any medication right now just because it's kind of just doing its thing. Um, but what I'll usually do is just use like my, my, my styles and my essential oils. One thing I really like to do is to take a shower and I use, um, Dr. Bronner's peppermint castile soap, which I love. That's my favorite. And I put a couple of drops of eucalyptus oil to diffuse in the shower. So the combination of the two kind of really helps to, um, alleviate some of my pain um, so I'll do that. So I try mm. to attack my pain as naturally as possible. And if I need to, then I resort to my medication.
0: Absolutely. So let's swing back to this discussion about you becoming your own advocate, because it sounds like, I mean, certainly when you were younger and your mom has migraines as well, she was able to guide you through those early experiences of pain and must have advocated for you and been an example of how to become your own health advocate. So can you talk to us a little bit about that relationship and how that advocacy impacted your relationship with your mom as well and with yourself?
1: Sure, absolutely.
0: So I remember
1: my mother always sticking up for me and always arguing with like teachers and other people they say, oh, she just has a headache. No, it's not a headache. She has migraine. It's completely different. This, 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 this. And she will set them straight every single time. And that made me feel so validated. It made me feel really, really good. And um, I think that played a big part in our relationship because we are extremely close. And um, she was like my first, you know, BFF. You know, she's Um, the first
0: person to believe you.
1: Yeah, most definitely she was, and because of her, I was able to get diagnosed that early. You know, and Mm. actually see a neurologist at eight years old in 1986. Like, who does that?
0: Yeah, I know that's pretty
1: exceptional. (laughs) It is exceptional. My story is very exceptional, Um, and I always be I'm, I'm always make sure to to say that I am a rare case when it comes to that, especially as a child in the 1980s in New York city, as a child of color, like that doesn't happen. Um, So she definitely advocated for me strongly and fiercely. And she definitely instilled in me the, the voice that I didn't know that I had until much later on in life. Um, And I'm very grateful to her for that lesson of, advocacy and standing in your truth and being okay with that and um there's nothing wrong with correcting somebody in a way that's not disrespectful but just i'm here to let you know this is actually what you know i have this is how i experience it and it's much more than what you you know believed it to be.
0: Absolutely. And in terms of your development of self, you know, over those years, particularly from childhood on, because you were encouraged to become your own advocate, do you think that's something that influenced your relationship to yourself in terms of self-confidence or, you know, ability to reflect back and know that your truth was solid? you know that your mom instilled in you something that enabled you to stand on your own two feet as well you know that's a very
1: interesting question because because of my major depressive disorder it severely impacted how i saw myself mm. and so i still struggle with feelings of you know low self esteem and not having a lot of confidence and you know, that surprises a lot of people just because of the strength and calmness of my voice when I speak and this, you know, humbleness of this internal power I may seem to to show. But I am a very scared little girl trapped inside this body. And mm. um, even though my mother taught me these things, um, and this goes to show how mental illness can really Um, affect how you see yourself and it's still something I'm working on. I really don't have a lot of confidence, even though I do this every day and I'm always questioning my ability to follow through and get something done. Am I good enough to do this? And is my story even that important for somebody to hear it or want to hear it? I struggle with that, but that's because of the mental illness. And when that happens, I have to go back and say, okay, that's not me inherently thinking that, that is the, the negative thoughts that come with depression. And then that ignites the anxiety, which then fuels that worry. And then that vicious cycle starts. Mm-hmm. So I have to remember to take a moment, take a step back and be like, okay. This really aren't truths I'm telling myself, even though it's very rational to the depressive and anxiety little brain, they're not real truths. And I have to step back and look at exactly what I have accomplished despite a daily life of pain. And I I step back and I look at my children and how well they've, grown up and the adults that they are now and just how wonderful they are. And I have to step back and look at the fact that my husband has stayed by my side throughout all of this and has encouraged me and uplifted me and um, has not made me feel guilty or blamed me for any of my illnesses and show myself that that's a reflection of who I genuinely am. It's not all of this negative self-talk that I am so quick to jump onto that bandwagon and believe it. It's everything else. So self-confidence is something I struggle with. And I have to do a lot of internal work to remind myself that I do have it. I just have to you know, take a moment and go through like the timeline of my life to verify that, yes, you do have it, you've shown it, you've exemplified it, and you're good.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and it, it sounds to me like you've learned some really amazing coping techniques um, through mental health support, but, you know, imagine someone who didn't have access to mental health support going through something like this, um, It's amazing what a difference it makes because you're still, as you say, you know, a scared little girl inside this strong woman's body Mm -hmm. and um, that you're able to delineate between the rational and irrational is a real gift because that is a very thin line. It is extremely thin. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a lot of
1: practice and a lot of therapy.
0: (laughs) I'm with you on that one.
1: Lots of. Therapy, lots of therapy. And um, I'm grateful that I had health insurance that covered that and covered as many sessions as I needed. That isn't everybody's situation. And, I, mm. and I'm very aware of that. And I just wish that behavioral health was seen just as important as physical health. Um, yeah. Because getting your physical every year you know, your mental health is equally as important, if not more important. Um, and should be something that everybody should do at least once a month, even if you don't have a mental illness, check in with somebody. And yeah. I just wish that, you know, that was seen as something that was necessary. Um, yeah. one, one thing that seeing the naturopath has taught me is that I was putting band-aids on arteries years before yes. seeing her, and I needed to take a different approach and to heal not just myself physically, but mentally, emotionally,
0: and From a root cause perspective, yes. and
1: spiritually. Yes, yeah, yes. Um, and however you connect with, you know, the greater, you know, universe, it's important to. You know, rectify that relationship and become one with that, and um, really, you know, enforce that connection. It's really important. So I'm I'm a huge uh, proponent of holistic, like true holistic healing and treatment. And um, I just wish that's something that um, health insurers really validated and incorporated, but it's just not.
0: Well, we'll get into that in a minute too. (laughs) (laughs) And I was wondering if you could also walk us through, I mean, obviously, as you've said, you've made some lifestyle adjustments to work around your symptoms and potential triggers of your symptoms. And I'm wondering what a typical day looks like for you. How are you balancing the demands of work and life as you manage potential chronic pain and depression and anxiety?
1: Well, well, I get to work from home because mm-hmm. I've been on disability for quite some time because I just can't maintain a normal 9 to 5.
0: Well, you say normal, but this expectation of 9 to 5, it's actually hurting more of us than harm yeah. or harming more of us than not, isn't Very it? Very true. Very true. Um,
1: but my typical day is I, my alarm goes off at 8 a.m., And no matter what, I'll get up, regardless of how I'm feeling. And the first thing I'll do is after I wash it up is I'll make my cup of coffee. I'll put the dishes in the dishwasher away. And I'll sit and have like 15, 20 minutes to myself. And then after that, I try to carve out four hours in the day to do my work. And then once that four hours is up, I'm done. I'll just put it aside and I'll deal with it the next day. If within that four hours, my pain starts to creep up or I'm starting to feel feelings of depression flare up or the anxiety is starting to become a bit more increased and I'm realizing, okay, I need to take some self-care moments here, close my laptop, put it aside, and I'll do something for myself, whether that's watching my favorite movie or going to the pool with my daughter and sitting by the poolside and getting some sun and getting in the pool for a little bit, or, you know, we'll go to target, walk around with our masks on.
0: That's a, that's a new thing. The COVID mask situation.
1: um, But I'll make sure to do something for myself, no matter what that is. Mm. Self-care. Self-care is very, very, very important. And, um, I try to spend as much time as I can with my kids. They're 22, 19, and 18. They all live at home with us still. But we'll break out a board game or play a game of Uno or something and, you know, do something like that. Or they'll help me make dinner in the kitchen. So that's usually Mm -hmm. what my day is. I just, you know, I go on despite the pain. But if it starts to become burdensome, I am okay with not being okay. And yes. it's not the end of the world and there's always tomorrow and I can put what I'm doing aside. And the beautiful thing about working in the arena I work in, everybody around me understands that. And they don't expect me to be this plow horse that's going to power through everything. Um, so the expectation isn't demanding at all. And um, I could kind of make my own time frame for things, but I just do what I know I can do. And if I'm not able to achieve that in any particular day, that's fine. I can do it the next day. I don't do more than I can because Mm. that's not beneficial to me. That's only going to create more pain for me and discomfort. And then I'll be just completely out of commission for two or three days after that. And that's not worth Mm. it.
0: It sounds like you're doing all you can to keep stress at a minimum because stress is a major trigger too. Yes, it
1: is. It is. It's not helpful at all. And stress is going to come because it's life and we can't avoid life and unexpected things happen all the time. So if I can minimize as much as I can, the things I can control, I'm going to do that.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned that, you know, when you were younger and as you've dealt with various healthcare practitioners moving through the system as an adult, you've had experiences where people have denied the existence of your your diagnosis because they couldn't see it. And I'm wondering if you could share with us any anecdotes um, about times when you were confronted and forced to justify or validate the existence of your pain to people who didn't understand it because they couldn't see it. How did those situations manifest for you?
1: I have a very unique situation that I I always like to go back to. I really haven't had any healthcare practitioner not believe I was in pain, but I've had plenty ask me if I was doing enough about my pain. Hmm. and. I hate that question. Right, because it puts all the responsibility on you. (laughs) Or it just implies that I'm not doing everything I can to get better. And I usually get that question in the urgent care. And there's this one particular doctor um, who I saw a few times at this urgent care. And I just, I, I don't think she liked me. And I have what I call my migraine binder. In my binder, mm. I have my protocol from my headache specialist. It's written on letterhead. And it gives a brief synopsis of my diagnosis, um, what I've taken in the past, what, what has failed me, what I'm currently on now. And when I use my borders and rescues at home, but they fail, my next step is go to the urgent care and these are the medications I would need and the doses to bring me back to my baseline of two.
0: So all anyone has to do is look at the medication, prescribe it, and Bob's your uncle. Yeah, but there's quite a bit on there. So
1: it scares people. Now, there are no um, opioids on there. So it really shouldn't be that you know, difficult. But the amount of stuff that's on there, I have to get quite a few things. Because I'm intractable and, you know, you have to give me, you know, quite a big punch to bring that pain down. Because by the time I come into urgent care, I've been dealing with this high level migraine for at least two weeks. So, you know, but that scares some doctors. So, but I don't know, she didn't like my binder, maybe because it looked like I thought I knew too much or I knew more, more than her. You know, not all physicians or healthcare providers like a very informed patient. Um, So she was like, that that particular time was like my third time there, because just nothing was helping. And she was like, well, this is like the third time you're here. Are you doing everything you can for this migraine? And I said, well... And basically my whole story I just gave you, I told her everything I've done. And, mm. and if my insurance would cover X, Y, and Z, I wouldn't be in your urgent care. Exactly. And then she was like, okay. And then she took my protocol and then filled it. Why did I have to do that? Why yeah, are you extra questioning hoop. me about what am I doing? I've had surgery. I had a neurostimulator implanted in me. Wow. Okay. I had that for five years Worked for for two, didn't work for three, but I kept it in there just giving it another chance. Mm. You know, I've done so many things. i paid out of pocket for so many things. Yeah. I should not have to sit there and validate everything I've ever done to make you feel comfortable enough to give me my protocol that is written up by my headache specialist who specializes in headache medicine, which you do not. Yeah. In order for you to so true. To, to fulfill this uh, treatment for me.
0: Just was- Yeah, and to take me seriously.
1: I was so angry and my husband was like,
0: I think you were a little bit too hard on her. I said, No, I wasn't. <laughs> I was so angry that I- you were also in pain. That's yeah. the thing is like doctors are dealing with people who are already under duress because yeah. they're in pain or otherwise. So not taking patients at their word is one way to make people even more frustrated. You're going to be dealing with an ornery patient when you do that. Yeah. And
1: I have Mm -hmm. to be very careful about my response because I can come off as the angry black woman. And that's another barrier that a lot of people. Well,
0: this is, yeah, (laughs) I want to talk about this because this idea of the angry black woman, you know, um, I'm wondering about how much of these experiences that you've had with doctors like this who won't validate you immediately have potentially had to do with either gender or racial discrimination. And, you know, we hear this idea of the angry black woman, but if you were a black man, you might not be considered the same. If you were a white woman or a white man, like I wonder if your circumstances would be different if you presented differently than you do as a woman of color. Do you think that perhaps that's true? Oh, absolutely. If I was a even
1: a a a black male, I would be prescribed you know, an opioid probably more mm. quickly than me as a woman of color just because just as as a gender difference, right? prescribed you know, pain medication, you know, way more than women are because women were hysterical. It's all in your head. Yes. Misdiagnosed as having mood disorders, you know, Mm -hmm. you're given like Prozac or some type of antidepressant and go take this and stop being so stressed. And
0: Whereas you're you're like, I already know I have the mood disorder. Thank you. (laughs) Right.
1: So there's there's definitely that. Definitely there's that. Mm. But especially when it comes to migraine because it because it's classified as a women's issue um and women are historically seen as creatures of hysterics yeah um it's it's a lot harder to validate your pain condition in the healthcare environment and then as a person of color Um, we're seen as people who don't experience pain the same, or just don't experience pain at all. So, um, it's extremely, um, frustrating. And then I have to be very conscious of how I show up. You know, when I go to urgent care, I want to be, you know, in my pajamas and my slippers, but I'm afraid to do that because I don't want to be dismissed because of how I look physically, even though it shows and represents how I feel internally. Cause I'm that bad. I feel that bad. I can't put clothes on, but I get fully dressed and I fix my hair. So I really don't look like I'm in pain, but I'm just afraid of being completely dismissed based on how I look physically Mm. or maybe classified as, somebody who is, who is of low socioeconomic status and doesn't have insurance, disrespected. this or that, I shouldn't have to do that. But I'm consciously yeah. aware of that. I'm consciously aware yeah. of the words that I choose, of how I speak. I have to be calm. I'm, as much as I get disrespected, I stay calm. And I try to take a breath and just try to answer things in a way to just make sure that person knows I'm extremely educated in what I'm talking about. This is my, I do this every single day. This is my job. I know more about my disease than you do. And, but it's exhausting.
0: Yeah. And And it's a stressor, which can make your pain worse.
1: Yes. And it just, it just begs the question, how many white women have those thoughts before going to urgent care to their doctor? Like, do you mm. really think about how you look? Do you really think about how you're going to sound? Um, yeah. When you answer questions, um, do you feel?
0: Well, and the, yeah, the difference yeah. is that an angry black woman is an hysterical white woman. Yeah. Like the white woman isn't called angry. Right. The black woman is, you know, yeah. that, that, that these same states of behavior have different labels depending on your race, mm-hmm. which really demonstrates this inherent bias in the system.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, there's just so much bias. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's just another layer and things I've had to deal with that had another a neurologist, actual neurologist, the one who gave me my Botox injections basically blame me for my pain. And Oof. got fired that day. <laughs>
0: oh, that's good. That's good. So you know, but this is the other thing. Like you're an advocate, so you know that you can move on to the next doctor because this doctor wasn't for you. But not everyone knows that either. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, that's the thing. We feel like
1: we are indebted to our physicians when they yeah. actually work for us. Thank you. We are in charge of our own health and our healthcare and how we see our treatment going. And it is a 50-50 relationship. It is not a dictatorship. It's a partnership. It is a partnership. So if this physician is not willing to work with you, you can fire that physician. If they do anything that discriminates against you, you can file a complaint, which I did with, this neurologist because he flat out lied to me, gave me false information about Botox and CGRPs and the killing people. And that wasn't mm. the case. So so
0: he had a problem with Botox then.
1: Yeah. He didn't want to give it to me. Like if you just don't want to give me the Botox, don't give it to me. Don't lie to me about it. But mm. he didn't know who I was and how educated I was and that I actually right. new reps from the Pharma company that makes and produces <laughs> Botox. So, yeah. okay, that's fine. You can say what you want to say, but I put made a complaint, got my twenty dollars copay back because I got no services that day, and yeah. you got fired. You have all the autonomy in the world to take care and manage your healthcare, not your position.
0: Mm. Absolutely, so well said. And would you also say that this racial and gender? inequality, discrimination. I mean, outright racism and misogyny that we've seen in the healthcare system. Would you say that this is a public health crisis?
1: Absolutely it is. Yeah. Absolutely it is. There are so many healthcare disparities that affect access to care, utilization of care, and available treatment. Even when it comes to marketing, how it's targeted. There are so many groups yeah. of people who are completely missed because usually we're talking about people who have insurance. What about the underinsured or the non insured? You know, so and not everybody has access to, te- to technology um, or to
0: information for that matter.
1: Exactly. Um, and we're completely, you know, ignoring people that utilize community health centers. Yeah. You know, not everybody goes and sees a private physician or has this big HMO. Um so, yeah, it's definitely biased. Um it is a public health crisis and and it, it is because healthcare is seen as a luxury in this country and not a right. Yes. And until that changes, many people are going to be left behind in the, in the healthcare system.
0: Yeah, and that's going to have to be an entire mindset shift, which is what we're trying to enact with these tellings of patient stories. I'm also wondering about your advocacy work. I would love for you to share with us how you started the Migraine Diva, how you have educated yourself as an advocate, and also paid it forward to the community. Talk to us about that.
1: My blog came about because I felt extremely alone in my diagnosis with chronic migraine and chronic daily headache, daily persistent headache. I didn't know anybody that had any of those diagnoses. And even though I had a wealth of support around me, nobody was experiencing pain like I was. And I just needed to be around other people in the migraine community. And since I have a background in writing and I learned about this thing called blogging, It's like, well, I'll start one and see what happens. And the whole point of it was to just be very transparent and share my story, but also use it as a platform to help dismantle the stigma around migraine and headache and um, also the stigmas around mental health and mental illness because that was also a big part of my life. It was just as chronic as the migraine was. So it was important for me to be very open and honest about both, but that it wasn't a reflection of who I was as a person. And it introduced me to a group of Wonderful people, a wonderful community that I didn't know existed before that. And I think that saved my life in many different ways. I felt like I had a place where I can be myself and I didn't have to explain anything. They just got it. You know, I could just say, oh, it's, I'm feeling this or I'm feeling that. I'm like, oh, I know, I know, I felt that weight too. I deal with that too. And just not having to always explain what migraine is and what this is and what that that. or having people give me unsolicited medical advice all the time, which is another part of having Mm, chronic
0: (laughs) Major pet peeve. (laughs) Believe me, I've tried yoga. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Or increasing your water intake. Um, (laughs) That's a good one, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, But that was just um, a great door opening for me. And a few years into writing my blog, I got an email from a marketing company who worked for telepharmaceuticals. And they were putting together a panel for the her conference in 2016, mm. in LA, and it was their more to migraine campaign. And they asked if I could be on the panel as the patient advocate. And I was like, Amazing. Oh,
0: BlogHer is a wonderful organization. It is. I'm like, this is huge. And I'm like, I didn't even know I was a patient advocate, but okay. Um, Mm, I think that happens to so many of us. We start just sharing in order to find community and we accidentally become advocates and it
1: saves our lives. Like you said, that's exactly what happened. Um, They just found my blog. They loved it. And I mean, my blog had at the time, like 43 followers, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, okay, this is so weird. So that was the first time I did any kind of advocacy work in sharing my story to a room full of women who didn't openly share that they had migraine. So when we asked the question, how many of you have migraine, like 95% of the room, their hands went up. And um, it was just such a fulfilling moment. And there were other people in the room who took to my story and my candor and it just led to other things. And it was, it's been like a whirlwind ever since it was not my intention. When I started my blog, I just wanted to be a part of a community and I wanted to do my part in dispelling the stigma because it affected me my whole life. And the fact that it, Brought me to this space where I could not only get sh- stronger in being an advocate for myself, but use my voice to advocate for others who haven't found theirs yet. Um, is extremely gratifying, and it's given my pain a wonderful purpose.
0: Oh, that's so beautifully said. Absolutely, and just to pivot back to the healthcare system, because you know the work that you're doing as an advocate is really it's in addition to the healthcare system, right? You know, it's providing a service to so many people and to yourself. That's not provided by our current healthcare system. I'm wondering, you know, you've been in the healthcare system since you were a kid. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there are ways in which it's working for us here in the U S because we know that there are ways in which it's falling short with bias, lack of belief, um, you know, lack of access, which you mentioned people who are insured or uninsured and are using community health centers. But, um, you know, if we look at it in balance, in what ways is it working and what ways is it not working? And you're allowed to say it's not working at all.
1: (laughs) I was pondering that question for like at least 10 minutes.
0: And if I'm completely
1: honest, I don't think it's really working. Honestly, it only works for you if you have access to it. Yes. And that really isn't that many of us in this country. Mm. And thanks to the Affordable Care Act, more people have access to the public health care system.
0: But of course, that's constantly under threat. It is. but Which my, is a stressor to patients. <laughs> yes. But in my honest opinion, it
1: really doesn't work. Not really. Yeah. There's just too many things wrong with it. There are too many barriers in place um, Mm. that hurt patients and hurt the doctor-patient relationship. Yeah. And healthcare is a for-profit industry. It is not about the overall health and well-being of people. We Mm. are seen as numbers. And until that shifts and changes it will be a broken system and continue to be a broken system. I can't say there's anything working for it right now.
0: I am clapping you <laughs> so many times over in my head right now. Yes, 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 absolutely. Can you also give us? I have a couple top three lists. I was wondering if you can give us your top three tips for someone. Maybe they suspect they've got something off, maybe they're diagnosed with a chronic pain condition. What would your top three tips be for someone who's living with invisible illness? Like you are
1: my top three tips,
0: like on how to get through it. Yeah. Just what would you, I mean, or even if you were talking to your younger self, what would your top three pieces of advice be? Okay. Number one,
1: you are not your illness. Mm. Number one, you are not your illness. Love that. Yes. Um, Number two, You still have value. Yes. You're nailing it. Um, Number three, your new normal is just as acceptable as your old one.
0: Yeah. It's just a little bit of a mindset shift sometimes, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, such good advice. What about, and this one's my favorite of the top three lists. I want to know what the top three things are in your life that give you unbridled joy. So we know that you've had to make lifestyle adjustments because of your diagnoses um, and because you've taken a root cause approach, particularly with the fibromyalgia. But I want to know three things that you're unwilling to compromise on. These can be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities, especially if you're having a high pain day, but three things that light you up that you turn to for joy. Number one will always be my children. Yeah.
1: Always them. I remember as a, when they were younger um, and them just laying quietly in my bed during a really bad attack um, just to be close to me. Um, And that would just help lower my pain a little bit. Um, Mm. They will always be my number one. Number two would be my husband because he taught me the greatest lesson. And that, that was my number one tip that I am not my illness and it is okay not to be okay. He taught me yeah.
0: that. Oh, how beautiful.
1: He's number two. Number three would be The Lord of the Rings because I cannot get <laughs> through any bad migraine without that trilogy or the book, which I've read, I don't know how many times. So wow. I have to have that in my life. I would never give that up.
0: <laughs> I love that because it's a real fantasy. Like There's so much in those stories that is not of our world the way we know it. And it's a real escape, isn't it, those stories? Oh, it is. Every single time I've, I've watched it, I don't know mm. how many times. I mean, those movies are so great. They're so immersive.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know them verbatim, so <laughs> that's many times I've watched it, so it's definitely Love a
0: problem. <laughs> it's not a problem. I think that's awesome. So what is your ask for listeners today? What can everyone who's tuning in today do to support you and your community in your ongoing work? What
1: people can do to support the headache and migraine community is to just become more aware of the diseases and the different headache disorders there are and how severe they are and how much they impact Americans and how truly disabling, especially migraine and cluster, those two particularly are we need as much help as we can to bring more eyes to the egregious lack of funding that headache disorders receive from the national national Institute of Health. Mm. So if we can get more people to donate to the Alliance for a headache disorders advocacy, who puts on the Headache on the Hill event every year, which is probably the largest scale advocacy event I've ever participated in, where we go to D.C. and we lobby our uh, congressmen and representatives um, with specific asks every year. Changes, But for the most part is to raise um, funding or increase the funding for headache and um, migraine disorders, as well as chronic pain overall, because it's so misunderstood in this country. Um, donations to that would be great participate in a miles for migraine education day, or go to an event to support someone that you know and love that has migraine and, um, just be more empathetic and sympathetic when it comes to migraine. It's, and I hate saying this is so cliche, It's so much more than a headache. You don't have to Mm. experience head pain to have migraine. There are so many other disabling symptoms that go along with it, including cognitive impairment, which is one of my more serious symptoms that I deal with, which I think is brain
0: fog and stuff,
1: brain fog, um, memory loss. Mm. Um, I lose my words. Aphasia is a big thing. Mm. And, um, like I can be in the middle of a sentence and my mind goes completely dark and I have no recollection of what I was trying to say. And it happens to a lot mm-hmm. of us with chronic or intractable migraine. And it's, it's very frustrating. And um, it, 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 it impairs your ability to drive to, to an extent because your processing of information is slower. So you don't trust yourself behind the wheel, you know, um, but just become more aware And support those uh, patient organizations and advocacy groups, Um, those like the Headache and Migraine Policy Forum that pushes those advocacy um, issues um, that affect patients and uh, patients with migraine and headache. It's really important. So just do a little bit more research and um, support those around
0: you that have headache and migraine and do a little bit of education. I love that. What's next for you in your advocacy and wellness journeys? Well, for advocacy, I have a huge thing coming up.
1: Um, I am a partner with uh, the Coalition for Headache and Migraine Patients as one of their um, patient opinion leaders, and we are currently working on an issues brief to determine what the racial uh, disparities are in headache and headache medicine.
0: Wow, that's and, amazing.
1: Um, I would be the lead author on this white paper.
0: That's incredible. Good for you.
1: And the purpose of this is to hopefully launch my new nonprofit, which will um, aim to address disparities in um, communities that are adversely affected by migraine and headache. Usually that would be um, low socioeconomic. Um, communities, people of color, um, indigenous people, those Mm. who are incarcerated um, immigrants. So my goal is to look at and help those communities who often are overlooked because I'm usually the one chocolate chip in the whole cookie when I'm in the room. Mm. (laughs) I'm always addressing and bringing up this issue. So my goal is to start my own nonprofit to hopefully help those who are underserved and and eventually um, grow to a point where it is all people of color, all BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, regardless of your socioeconomic status, who are um, adversely affected by health disparities in this country.
0: That's incredible. We'll have to have you back on the show when you're launching the nonprofit. (laughs) Sounds good. I can't wait. Sounds good. Yeah. It's exciting. It's
1: exciting work. And I'm just really, really excited for where we're going um, in headache and migraine.
0: That's so exciting. I'm really thrilled for you, Jamie. It has been such an honor having you on the show today. Can you also briefly share with everyone where they can find you and your work? Absolutely. So my blog
1: is The Migraine Diva. You can find that at TheMigraineDiva.com. I am on Facebook. Um, You can find me at TheMigraineDiva and Instagram and Twitter. My handle is MigraineDiva.
0: Amazing. Jamie, it's been such an honor speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and to share your journey with us. Um, I am so excited for what's next for you and for what's next for so many of the underserved in the headache and migraine and chronic pain communities. So um, we need more lights like you in the world, you know, carrying the torch and uh, bringing really equal care, equity, and justice to all. So thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I had a great time. and I look forward to our next conversation. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at UninvisiblePod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.